Welcome to this sermon from Silver Lake Baptist Church. Our mission is to celebrate the greatness of God with all we are for the joy, hope, and renewal of our community. We are so glad you have chosen to listen to our message. We pray you will be blessed by your time with us today. Good morning, everybody. No, I'm not Pastor James. And if you're visiting with us today, I'm sorry. So I was thinking to myself, you know, it's been a while since I stood up here and spoke to you all, especially so many of you all. <laughs> thankful for that. But the Lord put something on my heart. He says, you know, you got to get up there and speak a little bit. Say, say what's on your mind. Then I thought about it and said, you know, I don't say what's on your mind. <laughs> um, but as Jim and I have been preaching through uh, Acts, you know, we started thinking about some of the lessons that we've gone over and learned and some of those things. And I thought to myself, Life isn't fair sometimes. And that's kind of where I was going with that. And so I started thinking about, have you ever gotten on to or had to call customer service? <laughs> you know, you get on the you get on phone, and of course you're trying to find the fine print where the number's at, and you look it up, and you finally find it. You call them up. It rings for a little while, and then all of a sudden you get to the phone tree. You get to the phone tree, and then all of a sudden you're sitting there going through all the things, press one for this, press two for that. And so you're already frustrated. Number one, you're frustrated you had to call them in the first place. Number two, you're frustrated because you have to go through all that stuff. Then when it seems like forever, you finally get to speak. No, no, you get the privilege to speak to somebody. And then when you start to talk to them, you tell them your story, why you're calling them, why you're having the problem or something that you hope that they can help with. Once you start to do that, they say, oh, hold on, hold on. I need to transfer you to somebody else. Um, I'm not familiar with that, so I need to, to have you call or talk to somebody else. So I'm going to transfer you. Oh, thank you for that help. They're going to transfer you. So you tra- they transfer you over, and then they put you uh, on hold for another whatever. And then finally you get to talk to somebody else. Now, you're thinking, okay, now I'm getting somewhere. It's been two hours. I've been on here, and let's, let's do this. So you're sitting there talking to them. You tell them again your whole story again. I'm having a problem with this. I'm having a problem with that. Then they say, well, looks like you're out of warranty. Or (laughs) it looks like you purchased it from this place and whatever. They give you another excuse. And you kind of just feel like you're getting the runaround. They said, tell you what, uh, we need you to do this for us. Why don't you write us a letter? You can send it by email. Write us a letter telling us your grievance or whatever. And you're like, now I'm going to have to tell my story over again? I'm going to plead to somebody else. So you're sitting there, okay, fine, so, yeah, give me the information, give me the email where I'm going to need to send it, whatever. And you finally do, but you think to yourself, why do they do that? Well, some companies do this in hopes that you'll just give up and you know, just deal with it, live with your choice in purchasing whatever you did. So my question there is, was it fair? Was the outcome fair to you? Was the experience really good for you or what you wanted out of it? So, again, the question comes up. Have you ever th- just thought, well, life isn't fair, just because of that one little moment? Have you ever been treated poorly by, you know, your job, by, from your friends, heck, even from your family? But what about God? How has God treated you? 
Don't answer that. <laughs> I kind of already know the question because you're all here. Okay. Life isn't always fair, but God is always faithful. Amen. So we'll gonna, we're going to read out of Acts 25. Yes, we're still in Acts. We're almost there. Acts 25, 1 through 22. And as we turn there, let me pray for us. Father, Lord, thank you for this time and this opportunity. Again, Father, we thank you for this beautiful weather that you've given us. You've given us so many things that it seems unfair. Father, we thank you for giving us the opportunity to speak up when others don't have a voice. We thank you for giving us the ability to raise people who uh, would uh, seek you in their lives, Father. And we just thank you for yet another opportunity to fellowship and worship you in the way that you deserve. Uh, Father, be with us today. I thank you for allowing me to be your conduit today. Uh, allowing us to give Pastor James just a day to rest and catch up on other things that he needs to catch up on as well. As life goes on, we know this type of thing, and we were thankful for that. And we ask for your blessings as we continue our day, and of course for the uh, services to come when uh, for Nima's celebration. And Father, thank you again for all that you have planned for us. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So let's start off with Acts 25, verse one. Now Festus had come to the province after three days. He went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Now, again, a little geographical thing. Caesarea is down here at sea level. Jerusalem's up in the mountains, roughly around 2,400 feet in elevation. So think about how long it would take to walk or to, just to get there. It's about, what, you know, 80 miles, I think it is, something like that. So anyway, they went up there. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jewish or the Jews informed him against Paul, meaning that they told him what they wanted to tell him uh, about Paul, and they positioned him, petitioned him, asking a favor against him that he would summon him to Jerusalem, while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. Say so again, they're in Jerusalem and they're going to go down to Caesarea. And when he had remained among them for more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended any, anything at all. That's Paul talking there. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? Oh, so now I've got to go back and forth. Okay. So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. Important here because Paul's a Roman citizen. He has that right. To the Jews I have done no, no wrong as you very well know. For I am an offender, for if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Verse 12 says, Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, 
You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. After some days, King Agrippa and Bernice, his wife, came to Caesarea to greet Festus. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver a man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face, and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. What was I? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Therefore, when they had come together, without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought, to be brought in, sorry. When the accuser stood up, so they stood up, getting ready to say what they want to say. They brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed. Meaning, they didn't say anything he thought they were going to say. But had some question about, against him, about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died from Paul affirmed, for Paul affirmed to be alive. And because it was, I was uncertain of such question, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to, appealed to the, be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So basically the rest of the chapter as it goes deals with the various legal uh, maneuverings of the Jewish religious authorities to get custody of Paul and to attempt to kill him. Basically, that's all they wanted. And Paul attempts to, try, to be tried fairly in a, in a Roman court as opposed to down in Caesarea where they would be. As a Roman citizen, he had that right, like I said before. In chapter 24, we saw that Paul had given, had given his defense before Felix. The Roman, um, they call him the procurator, but basically the governor of Judea who had jurisdiction over uh, over Jerusalem where Paul was supposed supposed crimes had been uh, taken place. So Felix kept Paul in custody in hopes of uh, extracting a bribe but uh, Paul refused so he languished in you know limbo for about two years. So this is hard to think about. He'd been there for two years. What other things have we been in limbo for two years for? I don't know. So he was there until Felix retired and was succeeded by Festus. That's where we're at. So Festus traveled to Jerusalem to meet the Jewish authorities who immediately sought to have Paul transferred back to Jerusalem so they could put him to death. Plain and simple. But Festus refused, saying that they would have to come to Caesarea for a proper trial. Yada, yada, yada. So a few days later, a few days later the, Jew, the Jews again aired their grievances, uh, non-substantiated with real evidence or witnesses, which is why they, uh, their trial before Felix got nowhere. So then Paul argued again in his defense, insisting that the Jews had no witnesses uh, or proofs of their uh, uh, you know, stuff that they were saying, of course. 
So he suggested that maybe Paul should, well, Festus had suggested maybe Paul should just go up to Jerusalem and let the Jews deal with him there. Paul knew that he would never get a fair trial. So then in verse 10, we talked about he applied, appealed to Caesar. And Festus said, okay, fine. So later in chapter 24, as we talked about earlier, a while back, the Jewish king Herod had uh, Herod Agrippa and his wife made a visit to Festus. And the new uh, governor uh, consulted with uh, Agrippa about what to do in Paul's case. And they were Jews, too, so they wanted to hear what he had to say. So they were kind of, they already knew about him, and they wanted to hear what was going on. So, now, everything we see in this chapter is what we call a gross injustice. It simply was not fair. You know. The fact is, life's not always fair. It's not fair in this fallen, broken world. The Bible is filled with stories of unfair things that happen to good people. Johannes Johnson, quote, The life of a Christian is not always a dance on roses. We live in an evil world with lots of misery and problems. Sooner or later, things happen when we wonder, why is this happening and why is it happening to me? I don't think any of us have ever said that. (laughs) So what can we learn from Paul's unfair and unjust situation? There's a few things. First, sometimes we just have to accept reality and life is just not fair. I hate to say it, but it does happen. and We do have to do that. Life's just not fair sometimes. So we need to accept and even embrace. Embrace the unfairness. God never promised us a bed of roses in this evil world. I looked. It didn't say that anywhere. In Matthew 10.22, Jesus said, You will be hated by everyone because of me. James 1.2 says, it warns us, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I'm supposed to be happy about that? 2 Timothy 2.3, Paul exhorts Timothy to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. See, Paul considered unfairness as part of the cost of following the gospel. To Paul, this was what he expected from a lost and sinful-filled world. But there's a flip side to this. That's the unfairness of our world. What if God had been fair with us? If God had been fair, he would have just struck Paul down on the road to, Dam- uh, to, uh, to Damascus. But when describing his former life as a persecutor of the church, in 1 Timothy 1.13, Paul describes himself this way. Who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy. Oh, was that fair? Why is that fair? Paul, being a blaspheming, dangerous persecutor, should receive mercy after all the devastation he wreaked on on all the people, the early church especially. When the Christians first heard of it, they might have reasonably thought, that's not fair. I mean, he did all this to us and all he gets off scot-free. He killed my husband. He took our, uh, our house. It's not fair. Why should he be forgiven? Again, have we ever said that to ourselves? I don't know. I didn't. I'm, no, never mind. I have. <laughs> but God is not fair. He is just. He is also a merciful and gracious God. It was not fair that Jesus 
had to die for our sins. If life were fair, we would be struck down dead by the holiness of God. Paul realized that life is just not fair. And I wonder if he was actually glad about it because that meant he got a second chance. So we live in a society that mostly values fairness, which is a good thing. But a fallen world, in a fallen world, we will never be, there would never be perfect fairness. There's give and takes a lot of times in fairness. Because people are sinful. We all are. We will always be judges of who uh, are judged unfairly and how we, are, we feel we are judged unfairly. We will have unfair, fickle bosses. Some parents will even favor one child and unfairly treat another. And just about every TV expert we saw during the height of the pandemic unfairly painted the uh, opposition of their opponents in a bad light to get their point across. Even accidents and natural disasters are unfair. We can go on and on about unfairness. And despite all the attempts to gain more and uh, fair and ju- uh, justly just ideas, we can never eliminate it from this earth. Unfairness is going to be part of it. But it's just not Christians who face unfairness. Charles Sykes, in his book, Dumbing Down of Our Kids, talks about how our educational system is creating kids with no concept, concept of reality and setting them up for failure in the real world. He lists 11, 11 rules, he probably can go on, but 11 rules that will not, they will not learn in school. Number one, life is not fair, get used to it. Number two, the world won't care about your self-esteem. The world will expect you to accomplish something before you feel good about yourself. Rule number three, you will not make $60,000 a year right out of high school. Rule number four, if you think your teacher is tough, wait till you get a boss. (laughs) Rule number five, flipping burgers is not beneath your dignity. Your grandparents had a different word for flipping burgers. They called it opportunity. (laughs) Rule six, if you mess up, it's not your parents' fault, so don't whine about your mistakes. Learn from them. Number seven, before you were born, your parents weren't as boring as they are now. (laughs) They They got that way from paying your bills, cleaning your clothes, and listening to you talk about how cool you think you are. (laughs) So before you start to want to save the rainforest from the parasites of your parents' generation, try delousing your own bedroom first. (laughs) Amen. Rule eight, we keep going. Your school may have done away with winners and losers, but life has not. In some schools, they have abolished um, failing grades, and they'll give you as many times as you need to get the the final answer right. This doesn't bear the slightest resemblance to anything in real life. Rule number nine, life is not divided into semesters. You don't get the summer off and view very, uh, very few employees are interested in helping you find yourself. Do that on your own time. Rule number 10, television is not a not real life. 
in real life, people actually have to get up out of the uh, coffee shop and go to jobs. Rule number 11, be nice to nerds. Chances are you'll end up working for one. (laughs) See, folks, there's the reality check right there. The real world in which we live is not fair. It's not a fair place. We must accept this fact and learn how to deal with it, but in a healthy way. Secondly, the truth to, truth to see that the, despite the unfairness in our world, God is good and faithful all the time. Amen. See, Paul understood that despite the unfairness of his situation, God is perfectly just. Psalm 916 tells us that God is known by his justice. Revelation 16:7. An angel loudly declares, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Throughout Scripture, God is always just. And perfectly so. Why? Because he's God. But just as surely as it declares God's perfect justice, it also declares that God is always good. David says in Psalm 86, 5, You, Lord, are forgiving and good. Further on, Psalm 119, 68 says, You are good and what you do is good. So despite the unfairness of this world, we can always know that God never acts inconsistent with his character. He is always just and always good in everything he does. He will never treat us wrongly or without regard to what is best for us. He knows what's best for us. We only think we do. It was Paul himself who confidently declared these words in Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are called according to his purpose. Why is, this is why Paul was able to deal with the uh, constant injustices in his life and unfairness. He expected these things because Jesus has warned they would come. So when he faced situations where unjust and unfair you know, things would happen to him, he would just accept them. And he pressed through them. Paul put his faith in God because he knew him to be just and good. And this act of surrender helped, us, helped him to be able to deal with the injustices as he experienced them. This is an excerpt from Our Daily Bread from back in December of 2006. So many situations in life shout, not fair. I observe Christian couples who struggle to have babies and others are blessed with children and then abuse them. I look at families whose children are alive and well while I go through life without one of mine. I see friends who long to serve God but can't, wait, can't because of health issues. It's then that I must go back to basic, the basic truth. We are not arbiters of fairness. God is. He knows far more than we do about his plans and purposes. See, the question isn't about fairness. In the end, it's about trust in a faithful God who knows what he's doing. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are just. Deuteronomy 32.4 Life will never look 
fair. But when we trust God, we always know that he is faithful. It's a poem I read here. It says, if you feel bless or if you feel blessings pass you by and for your life seems a bit unfair, just remember Christ was born to die and in his great salvation you can share. See the message here from Paul, life is not always fair. But God is always faithful. The Lord promises to never leave us or forsake us in times of injustice or fairness. He promises that he will be there with us throughout the whole ordeal. Our part is to rest in our faith in in God, who is always good and always faithful. Let's consider number three here. What to do when you are unfairly treated. So Paul did react to these injustices and unfair circumstances. How did he? He, uh, based on what we read in Acts 24 and through the end of Acts, the things he shared in his uh, prison letters, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon, those letters he wrote from Rome. And some scholars believe that, you know, I was reading this thing about uh, that some were written in Caesarea, possibly. But here are ways that he responded to unfair circumstances. First, he kept his integrity. Felix kept wanting to a bribe from Paul for two solid years. Time after time meeting with Paul, hoping to break Paul down and get that bribe. He never got one. Paul never gave in. He didn't stop to save his neck. Paul modeled his commands to the three churches he wrote uh, from prison. Colossians 1.10, So that you may live a worthy life, worthy of the Lord, and please him in every way. Ephesians 4.1, As I, a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Philippians 1.27, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He kept his integrity. Next, he maintained contentment. That's a hard one. See, later at the end of his journey, writing to the Philippians from Rome, uh, Roman prison, shortly before his end in Philippians 4, 12, and 13, he wrote these, what I consider remarkable words. He said, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether we we well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. He can only do this by learning to trust his God, knowing God would always be good to him. Thirdly, he prayed a lot. We know this because his present letters often mention his prayers for the churches and for particular people and situations within those churches. He said in Philippians 1, 3, 4, I thank God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. In Colossians, another one of his present letters, Paul says, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Philemon 4, he says, I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers. See, oddly, he never prayed for his own release or justice and fairness. In fact, in, in another one of his prison letters in Ephesians, after mentioning prayer as part of the armor of God, he does ask for prayer for himself once there. 
Does he ask Ephesians to pray for fairness or justice or retribution for those who have wronged him? For deliverance from prison? Nope. Listen to what he, said, he asked him to pray for him about. Ephesians six nineteen to 20 says, Pray also for me that whatever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. See, he asked for prayer for him to continue to pray out loud and, and share the gospel with everyone. Paul refused to have a woe was me syndrome. He didn't go on Facebook and complain about how much his life sucked. In Philippians, he had every reason to complain. Yet his letters is filled with joy and rejoicing and positive, uplifting, victor, victorious spirit. He commands the believers in Philippi in Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always again, and I say, rejoice. Variations of the word joy and joy, uh, rejoice are found 17 times in four short chapters of Philippians. And not once does he complain about anything. Oh, I'm sure he probably said something in his mind, but he didn't say, he didn't say it out loud. Yeah, he gave that to God. See, therefore he could tell the Philippians, like he did in Philippians 2, 14, do all things without murmuring, grumbling, and disputing, arguing about things. Who in the church of Philippi could grumble and complain when Paul himself refused to grumble or complain? Even though he was holed up in a prison, deprived from his freedom, and experienced several hardships and want. See, Paul also did what he could and left the rest to God. That's what he asked us to do. Do what you can. Leave the rest to him. In Philippians 1, 12 to 4, he says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chain for Christ. And because of my chains, most of my brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. He was in a prison in Rome. And what does he do? He witnesses to everyone there that he comes in contact with. Even in Caesar's own palace where his prison was, a group of believers was being won and nurtured. Paul couldn't preach in the streets and byways of Rome, but he could what he could. He could do what he could from his jail cell. And he did. Paul let God produce the fruit of the Spirit in his life instead of stewing with resentment and bitterness. He had written the Galatians a few years earlier to allow the Holy Spirit to produce the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. What are they? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, fairness, and self-control. In prison, Paul lived out what he had taught the Galatians earlier. It's funny, Crystal and I had come across this gentleman at, at uh, the sporting goods store. We were talking about a guy, the guy was talking about his wife, who had been given uh, years of service to her church, and had suddenly been removed 
from her position without any, any question. And that was due to a disagreement on the vaccine. The hurt was obvious, of course, and deep, as he shared with us, and how unfairly she felt she had been treated. We can only just sit there and, uh, yeah, yeah, I understand what you're saying, yeah. And something in my, in my mind, as we drove away, the advice I could have given him, or we, at least we could have given him if he had asked for it, is the same I would give myself. When I feel that uh, others have done me wrong, what happens to me is more, in, uh, what happens in me is more important than what happens to me. Let me say it again. What happens in me is more important than what happens to me. See, there are many things which happen to us in life that we don't like. No, really. But what, that we are really powerless in some of those uh, times. To change our external circumstances, it's very difficult sometimes. We cannot rearrange someone else's heart or behavior towards us. Nor can we do uh, undo moments which have brought us harm. It happened. Our best resource is to ask Lord to change our inner life. See, the key sentence in this, what I said was, what happens in me is more important than what happens to me. See, if we grasp this and apply it to our lives, I learned this in the road to spirituality or spiritual maturity. Let's face it, we'll experience many unfair and unjust things in our life. What should be our response? The same as Paul's response, which was based on the response of Jesus. He said, first, hold to your integrity. Do not succumb to unethical means to escape your situation. Be content. Oh, that's an easy one, is it? Well, yeah. Pray more, especially for others. Specifically for others. Refuse to have the woe is me mentality. Do what you can and leave the rest to God. Finally, let God produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life by staying close to God. See, sometimes we get to witness God's grace and justice. We get to witness answers to prayers. We get, to, we get treated to fairness and forgiveness. We have, been feeling, we have that uh, feeling of love for others once in a while, especially for the retribution. See, I thank the Lord for the decision of the Supreme Court and their ruling on the overturning over, over of Roe v. Wade, personally. See, that is God's power in response to our faithfulness and understanding that God is just. He is right. He is the one who is in control of everything. We need to let go of what we perceive as control. What happens in us is more important than what happens to us. Live according to God's word. Live according to what he has asked us to do. Live according to him. Life isn't fair, but God is just.
Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for just a beautiful day. And Father, we know that things don't always go the way we want them to go. But Father, we must step aside and see that things are going the way you want them to go. We must allow ourselves to see this. And Father, we ask that you continue to be with us, watching over us, keeping us safe, healthy as the things that we always say. But Father, we also want to make sure that uh, we are listening to your spirit and that we are adhering to what you've told us to do. And Father, living the life that we've, you've given us is not futile in the fact that this is an unfair world. We just know that you are just and you do care and you do love us. Otherwise, we would get what we would deserve. We wouldn't be here today. Father, thank you again for today and bless us as we continue our day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, check out our website at www.silverlakebaptist.org.